Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Giovanni Beckford. Giovanni is a senior software engineer, a UI UX designer, fitness enthusiast, and a ferocious reader based in New York City. He writes about developing and acquiring habits, systems and tools for a disciplined approach to lifelong learning and self-improvement. He curates books, technologies, mental models, mindsets, and cognitive biases for smarter, more self-aware living, and shares these on his blog, Giovanni.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited. So we've actually been friends for a while. We met at a conference. Uh, What was the conference? It was, do you remember I think we met at a uh, diversity and inclusion conference. Yeah, we met at a diversity and inclusion conference. And he is one of the coolest guys I've met in my time in New York City and definitely a person I want to spend a lot more time with, but just has a really cool life and does has done some awesome, awesome things. So I want to start by having you talk a little bit about your background. And uh, the original question was how you start your blog, but also how did you get into software engineering? Because from my memory, you have a unique story. Yeah. Um, so my background is a little bit of a, uh, a maze, so to speak. And by that, I really had no idea where, what I was, what I wanted to do, where I was going. Um, I kind of had to bump into the walls and course correct over time. Uh, I grew up being very passionate about art and design. So I, I love to draw. Um, I love to paint and life kind of hit and it hit hard. So my art school ambitions pretty much went out the window. Um, but at the same time, um, I was looking for other avenues to integrate more creative um, endeavors. But I had to delay that for a, a while. Um, and eventually I decided to go to business school. Um, I had the perception of business school being a, a place that I can learn enough to start tra- like thinking about um uh, earning money as earning, uh, capital or wealth generation. Um, but the timing wasn't so right for me when I first started. Um, I decided to go to business school during the start of the financial collapse in 2008, uh, slash 2009. And for me, actually, I, I saw the, the, the whole unraveling and I went straight into the fire. I realized that I'm actually really, um, drawn to chaos. So I thought to myself, hey, financial world is collapsing. That seems cool. Uh, let me see what's going on over there. And so I went to business school and in business school, uh, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I would say I didn't really fit in with some of the culture of, of people that went there. Um, and I guess I should also clarify, I had, had no idea I was going to go to college in the first place. Um, so I grew up in the Bronx, raised by a single mom. And there was nowhere she, no way she could pay for the, the, the tuitions for me. Um, but I got in through a, st- a state sponsored program. And most of the kids that I went to business school with were, uh, some of like these rich kids, uh, just following in their parents' footsteps, so to speak. So there was a bit of a cultural divide and I felt very alone in business school. Um, and then in parallel, I saw technology taking off. And I also had awareness to realize that tech at my school, I went to Fordham. Um, wasn't the strongest, but I saw tech being useful. And so I stuck to business school studying finance and marketing. Um, uh, but I taught myself how to code on the side. 
And so I pretty much gave up all my spring breaks and my summer breaks. So no Cancun for me, no Tulum for me, uh, no senior weeks as well. Um, I pretty much set up shop in the library for uh, four years of my, my college to teach myself how to code um, during the summers and, and springs. And I got really good at it. And by the time I graduated, I figured that I wanted to go that direction a little bit more technical. Um, and eventually I kind of started out doing front end engineering where I would be able to do some UI design, user interface design and um, leverage some of my more creative uh, skills along with the technical skills that I had developed. Yeah, I remember you telling me that story and I thought it was awesome because I mean, sometimes life throws us, we, we can imagine the way we want our life to run and life is full of chaos, right? And what do you do with that? Like, do you just sort of sit and pout or whatever? And, and when you told me that story, I'm like, wow, this is really awesome. Here's a guy who crafted himself. He's a, a man who's crafting himself into the man he wants to become. And I see this in other aspects of the things that you're doing. I see it uh, with some of the groups that you started, which I hope that we can explore. I see it in your blog. And so with that said, I want to shift a little bit more into your blog, right? Can you talk a little bit about why you started your blog, what you do and write about on the blog and your goal with the blog? Yeah, um, I would say the sort of lead up into starting the blog was that I was learning how to develop a more consistent writing practice. Um, I used to despise writing. Uh, comp composition class in English class was was the, the kryptonite for me growing up. Um, and eventually, though, I was able to unlearn some of those uh, negative connotations that I had with writing and um, start to realize that being able to capture my thoughts, look back on them, be able to think better through writing, um, being able to share my ideas and using uh, writing and spreading throughout the internet as a way to get my ideas across on a wider scale. Uh, in addition, the, the blog kind of came about from very strategic thinking um, towards the long term about what resources do I have uh, that I can leverage to create uh consistent growth or forward momentum. And so because of the environment that I grew up in with very little limited resources, um, I had to be very, very clever about how much I can stretch something. And with my blog uh, being Giovanni.com, I was like, how much can I stretch out my brand and my name? And how can I create a vessel uh, to sort of aggregate value and aggregate thought leadership around getting better and creating systems to have more impact in, in our personal lives and, and in other lives as well. And for me, I, I like to joke around with my friends that I'm going to pretty, I, I'm almost cultivating myself to be um, the next Oprah mixed with Tim Ferriss. And with that, it doesn't mean I'm going to go all in on media, um, but I want to be like the guy you talk to about how can I improve this system? How can I get better? Um, and for me that I, I don't see that as like the only thing I do, but it's very important for me to get better at that, um, because of the, the more societal pressures that I'm going against, um, when, with what I describe as like the black experience or the experience of growing up in poverty, there's a lot of different challenges that you face through those circumstances, um, that for me, I feel like. 
I have to move, I have to move and work harder, like twice as hard than the average person that may have come into certain uh, situations of privilege. So for me, the blog is a way to create a, a sort of archive of like the best tools, tips, systems, books, and other experiences um, that I've come across that I'm sort of documenting for myself, but sharing with other people. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And it's true. Like we're, we all have different advantages and disadvantages and ex being extraordinary is one of the best places to better your level of equality. And I mean, I, I'm somebody who has sort of a unique background. I remember I was on a, I was on a date. This girl liked me and she was trying to date me where I was at dinner and this girl goes, girls, you're just a white Ivy league. Like I don't remember how she was or something. And I'm just like, you don't really know my background do you. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I went to an Ivy league, but I had to drop out because I didn't have money for school. And so I started my own business and I didn't go get transferred to a four year because until I was 29, cause I was helping my family after my dad died and it got kicked out when I was 18 and I was essentially homeless for a while. And I'm half Mexican. My last name's Luna. I might be a little bit more pale than some of my brethren, but like, and I've sat in the back of a fucking cop car. Like I've been searched. I've been breathalyzed. I've been harassed by the police. I've dealt with a lot of these things on my own sort of narrative and story. And like the, the best way in my experience to sort of develop equality is to be extraordinary. And it can be fucking hard. And that's why I, lo I love what you're doing because as I said before, like I watch you and like you're so structured in your approach to crafting yourself into the man that you want to be. And I, I think it's, Honestly, I think it's beautiful. With that said, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the books, right? Because you're reading constantly. I described you in the intro as a voracious reader. And I mean, how many books a month, a week, a year do you, are you reading? Yeah. Uh, so it kind of fluctuates uh, time to time. I would say now, like I kind of read on average, or I wouldn't say now, I'd say historically, I read on average around like one point. 15 or it's it's not evenly divisible, but it's a little bit more than a book a week and Over the course of the year I tend I, I average around at least 60 books a year It's awesome. And then you write reviews on each of them. Yeah, they're reviews So I, I write when I read books. I also have like a note-taking system that I use uh, using post-it flags that are color-coded coded to indicate different um, segments of a book that I can go back almost like a prospector, someone who's like prospecting for a mine and leaving flags behind for like the excavation team to come in later um, in order to, to be able to read straight through and not have to stop all the time. Um, I kind of leave these flags like marks and then I go back and I'll type up some notes on the book and uh, in parallel, I'll also write a review and post it on Goodreads and my personal site. How did you develop that system? I developed that system... It's it, the catalyst was frustration, whereas like the first couple of books I read and I remember having like this feeling of a gist of an important point that I wanted to share. Um, but I went back to get the book and I couldn't find that point point. And I was very averse to highlighting or marking up the book. So it was pretty much just like a, a brand new book that I wanted to remember where I f had read something, had no idea. Um, and this happened for like a couple books. And I was like, you know what? I need to start looking into alternative note-taking systems because I was still hesitant to write up the books. Um, and then I, I think I had saw a couple of blog posts either by um, Ryan Holiday or Maria Popova of Brain Pickings. And 
Um, they have some pretty uh, structured systems as well, not quite as specific as the color-coded system. Um, but that was iterated over time to kind of highlight, okay, what is the important, what is the most important um, parts in this chapter? What is the most important parts in this book? Um, what is something that I dis disagree with or I'm confused about? I'll use like a red post-it flag for that. Um, what are diagrams or or other section like uh, listicle se sections that I want to go back to later? Uh, so through the the process of like reading a book, being frustrated of like not having the the top points come front of mind, I had developed that system. And then when I started taking notes on the books, that also gave me a lot of learning about how do I want to organize the information that I'm taking notes on. And so that also influenced the the uh, post-it flag system. Maybe I can get you to put together an article on this or a video and share it with our listeners. Oh yeah, it's definitely on my my to write list. I have like an editorial calendar, and that's that's kind of I've been procrastinating on that one in particular. Uh, but I would I'm definitely gonna do a write up. Hopefully, we can nudge you to write this, and and uh, that way, if you're listening to this, you can get a link in the description below, because I think this is an awesome system. Uh, or based on what I hear of it, and it clearly is working for you. And when I say I know it's working for you, it's because I can see the consistent output of work, right? Like you're consistently producing, and I think it's awesome. So hopefully we can get you to do that. What, what's your favorite genre books? Yeah, it's it's hard to say what, uh, yeah, people ask me this a bit, uh, what's my favorite book or what's my favorite genre of books? I've kind of optimized myself to like learning uh very widely across the board because I rely a lot on associative learning in that what is one lesson that I can take from a, a field that seems completely disconnected or far-fetched and take the principles of that field and apply it to another field to create a new path of thinking. Um, so I try to, I use Trello actually to um, manage my reading list and I have a different number of uh, list within a Trello board that represents a genre. So on a high level, when I'm reading multiple books in parallel, I can make sure that I'm not reading too many books in the same genre and spread it out over time. Um, I would say the, the genres that I read the most consistent or like most frequently I tend to gravitate towards are uh, philosophy, economics, um, biography and memoirs, uh, health and fitness, uh, productivity, personal development, um, science. I, I love physics and psychology. Do you have any favorite authors? There are authors that I'm a fan of. Uh, I would say Nassim Taleb. I'm a huge fan of, uh, despite some people's criticisms of his behavior. Uh, I, I tend to focus on the idea more than the person. Um, but he's just a vessel for, for a lot of good ideas. He focuses a lot on risk and statistics and uh, just probability and uncertainty. Uh, and I would also say Robert Greene is another favorite of mine. Uh, 48 Laws of Power, Seduction. But he has, he has a number of books where he studies uh, a wide range of history and aggregates the most... Um, powerful topics or points within whether whatever field he's writing about so he, he's also releasing a book soon and i'm really excited for that i think it's going to be around human nature 
Um, and speaking of human nature, another author I enjoy, uh, Steven Pinkner, uh, Pinker. Um, I think he wrote The Blank Slate or in a couple of other books that I really enjoyed. Awesome. What are some books that you read recently that really stood out to you? Yeah, uh, some books that I read recently that stood out to me. I've been trying to understand groupthink more. So there was this book that I read called The Psychology of Crowds. So we're very familiar with uh, personality or psychology on an individual level um, that operates in a certain way. But there's also a psychology profile of groups of people. And so I've been very fascinated with that, especially in a political context or persuasion context to speaking to large groups. Um, so that, that was a, a very, very interesting book. And I think that book was published either in the early 1900s or a while ago. So that book is a, a, a number of years old and uh, it's still relevant today. There was another book that I read called How to Lie with Statistics. And I remember reading that book shortly after the elections. And because I was just so flabbergasted with how so many pundits could get it wrong. And I realized, wait, they, they were basically, there's a lot of uh, cognitive biases that you can kind of frame data information in a way to sort of validate or c confirm your own beliefs. And living in the city, we're in this huge bubble. So once you go west or you go south outside of that bubble, it's a whole nother world and people have widely differing opinions. So you may think the whole country or world believes something. Um, and listening to the media, you would like, oh, 80% of people support this or blah, blah, blah. Of course, their sample set is extremely limited, but they've kind of represented it. They've overrepresented it to, to sort of reflect the views of a large populace. Well, the challenge in New York City is we have a way of thinking about issues in the world, about the experience of life, and we broadcast it to the rest of the world, right? So whether it's the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, they're two of the biggest newspapers on the planet, or it's a lot of the TV networks, it's all shot here. So people are hanging out, they go to school oftentimes in the city or around the city, their friends, they live in the city, their friends around the city, they're perpetuating the ideas that are circulating within the city. But when I go back home to California, where my family lives, they live outside of the city in a suburb with um, three or 300,000 people or something, but it has a di very different feel. And I remember the last time I was there, if I had to describe it, the only word I could use is hopelessness. And, and the reason why I say that is you drive, I would drive through Main Street and a lot of the mall shops were empty, right? Stores were closed down. Things might be booming in New York City because in New York City, when there's a recession, the first place money flows back through is down, down through Wall Street, right? But it takes a long time for it to pour into the rest of the country. And so I understand what you're saying, right? Um, about how sort of these, we have this cognitive bias in New York City and how we have sort of these different sets of experiences in life in different places. But most of us are not necessarily very aware of what is happening in these other places. And this was really broken up with the Cambridge Analytica uh, debacle or whatever it is, that people had figured out how to use data to see how these people sort of think and feel and were able to give them the exact message that they wanted to hear and it began to resonate. And you could see, I mean, basically digital, digital marketing. I had a friend of mine who used to build uh, ad networks 
And so I was familiar with this idea before it broke. And I had mentioned to a friend, I'm like, I'm surprised nobody has used this in politics. Well, sure shit. <laughs> uh, people were using it in politics. <laughs> so uh, I think it's, I think that they're really interesting subjects. And it is. Yeah. I, I remember 2013, um, I had the, the fortune of uh, attending a uh, startup school hosted by Y Combinator. And uh, one of the keynote speakers was actually Mark Zuckerberg. And I had a question written down that I was going to ask him. And, but he, they, they cut it off. This is back in 2013. They cut it off saying, oh, he's not accepting any questions. And my question was going to be about how does Facebook handle um, contagion of negative emotions, highly populating, uh, like a segment of, of, of a sort of social circle. What I mean by that is that negative emotions, fear, anger, outrage, traverse through a graph network, uh, like a social graph, much quickly, more quickly than um, positive emotions. But when there's this like network effect or exponential effect of a lot of uh, negative emotions or anger spreading through a social network, it's almost like a plague or a parasite that is like spreading out through the system affecting everything. And then once you put people in that sort of emotional state, they're much more highly vulnerable to manipulation. So my question was going to be about like how what is Facebook's plan for that and and preventing um, using negative emotions or or outrage to pretty much break down the defenses of of people's psyche to a point where they can be easily manipulated. Uh, so unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to answer that question, but it's it's been interesting to see how things have played out and how how they've been sort of locking down their their network now, removing most of their APIs for friends lists and um, automatically posting. I, I just I, I also use Buffer to share on my personal Facebook page, and they've disabled that now. Um, Facebook is is really locking things down. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense I, on a personal level. I recently had to start using like Net Nanny type tools in order to block sites for myself. I tend I tend to read. A massive amount of news. I, I, at one time used to run political campaigns. I did it essentially up to the presidential level. So like, um, I started off as an intern in college and people kept offering me jobs. So I do it and stop and do it and stop and do it and stop. But the political environment has become so toxic from my perspective that I, I literally like on my phone have blocked the New York Times, Yahoo. Uh, I mean, Yahoo has shitty content, but. CNN, NBC News, ABC News. Like if there's a if there's a major disaster in New York, unless I get a warning on my phone, I won't know about it. And I and I I even set up a separate account on my computer because I want to start writing more. And I set up a separate account, a, a child account that allows me to. I've blocked all these accounts in there as well, so that I won't check the news because I found that's affecting me emotionally. So it's it's interesting. I, I think there's societal effects but there's also sort of things that we have to ask ourselves how okay this is cool this is affecting it's interesting how this is affecting society but how is it affecting me as a human being and in an era where it's easier to get constant access to this crap you used to just wake up in the morning there'd be a newspaper you flip through it and then you're done right if you're like really into like current events you might subscribe to a couple of them but now it's sort of non-stop and it, it affects our emotional psyche and i noticed it was affecting mine so i took some steps to try to create mechanisms to control that. So I, th I thought I'd share that because there's some people who are listening to this might be going through something similar. And 
Have you found that the news has affected you on a personal level? Oh, definitely. I had um, blocked out. I, I used to watch news when I was like mid-teens a lot, very consistently, um, primarily BBC News um, and some of the more foreign news stations. But now I've really cut out news. Similarly, I, I also use blo- uh, blocking software. Um, I use uh, Focus t- uh, Freedom, the Freedom app. I use Rescue Time and I use App Detox. So that gives me both desktop and mobile blockage coverage. And it's also automated so I can set time ranges to block out specific times. So that's that's been very helpful for me. It's it's helped my emotional health health tremendously. And um, it, it, it's something that I don't see myself reverting to. It's I prefer to, similar to you, wait until there's a certain threshold of people talking about something. And then I'll confirm like, oh, is this actually important to like tune into or tune into by like researching through other means? Or if it's a sort of geopolitical thing, I would prefer to read a book on the topic as opposed to listen to the media with random updates because they they have no idea what's going on. I prefer the understanding like the historical context. Um, so, for example, if there's something happening in Iran or with um, Ukraine and Russia, I would rather read a historical book on like the geopolitical evolution of those regions as opposed to listen to the news yeah I, I agree and also the content not only do people not necessarily know what's going on oftentimes the content is shitty and so when you go back and you read something that has like a historical context someone had 30 years of separation and three years to think about something the quality of the content is just a lot higher and it's better food in my experience for my brain and so i actually did i'm doing something similar and not only did i um, block these uh, a lot of the sites the new sites i actually became a member of a co-working space with the specific goal that after i was done doing my podcast for the day i would ride my bike uh, over to the co-working space get in half an hour 45 minutes of exercise and i would just read for a few hours and uh and then do do some writing you said that you want to get in the habit of writing how often do you write? How effective is that strategy? It looks like it's been effective. Uh, like, what, what is your sort of system for that? Sure. Yeah, I used to write. It's a lot of my habits kind of fluctuate based on, uh, of course, how active my schedule is and the responsibilities that I'm sort of juggling. In the past, I used to write. Uh, so, for example, 2016, 2015 were, were two years where I wrote every day at least 750 words. And I used the actual service to support that called 750words.com. And it was a specialized site to um, promote. Uh, It's more geared towards, I I would guess, journaling. But it's pretty much a a blank page that you can write. But it had this gamified model with streaks. And I realized that I'm very susceptible to uh, streaks and gamification. So a lot of the different tools that I use to support my habits have some sort of monitoring and tracking of consistency of days. And so I would use this site to write. Um, I, I realized for me, I, I write a lot in the night as opposed to the morning. Uh, but for, for people that the, people seem to have a tendency to write in the morning, I, I would like to experiment more with writing in the morning. But yeah, that's my normal approach. And I tend to have a, a list of topics that I would like to write about as backup in case I go through some mental block uh, that I'm not able to, to write free flow. Um, over time, my writing habits have changed. So I, that writing habit for the 750 words, I had, I think, over 
um, I had like a one and a half year streak for that habit, which is my longest streak ever. And it, it, for me, it was a bit scary how consistent I was with that or how disciplined I, I like to do different things to test my discipline at certain times. And for that writing streak, because I did not under any circumstance want to break that streak, there were certain social situations uh, that I had to uh, handle uh, not as gracefully. Uh, for example, I've gotten 750 words writing done in the club before where I was just with my friends like, guys, uh, I had to get my writing done. And it was the time, the deadline is midnight. So it was like 1130 and I'm like, oh, oh crap, I, I'm about to break my streak. And I'm just in the club with this band playing in the front and I just stand right to the side to, of the band. I'm on my phone just typing up to try to hit my, my count. There's been a time where I've been to the play with my mom. And I realized, oh, look at the time. And we're sitting in this play and I'm waiting for intermission to come so I can go and get my writing done. So that one was a little bit intense. My writing has definitely been more, the output has decreased, but I'm using other types of incentives. So now me and my roommate ha are using this website called Stick. So Stick, you can have like a particular habit or accountability buddy with a financial um, punishment if you break the streak. And the, the punishment is they use this thing called an anti-charity. So you stake the amount of money and your accountability buddy is your referee. They put report to you. But if you break the streak, that that collateral that you, you put up gets donated to a charity of your of, that you don't want it to go to. So for me, if I break my writing streak, which unfortunately I've, I've, I broke it two weeks ago and $200 went to the NRA. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's gonna be people who, who listen to this who are into the NRA, but I, I'm not against. I'm not against. The funny thing, yeah, they have it's this this list of charities. So I saw Planned Parenthood up there. So on the vice versa, along the sort of value spectrum, there are anti charities on both sides. That is so funny. I'm not against guns. I I, I think every community has to make this choice for themselves, right? Like if you live in rural Wyoming. And you want to have a gun to protect yourself? Fucking makes sense. Having people yeah, exactly. carry, carry uh, handguns in New York City and then be concealed is a bad fucking idea. <laughs> and there's a reason why it's illegal. <laughs> so um, it was tested. There's it's a bad idea. There's number. There's math that supports a lot of these proposals at this point. Different societies have tried different things, and uh, I don't think the NRA, like they definitely have the interest of the gun makers but i don't know if they necessarily have the interest of society um that's another topic so if somebody's listening and they want to argue with me about it feel free to shoot me a message i'm always open to other people's perspectives but this is that's the one i currently have so I, one thing i want to ask you about you're talking a lot about scheduling and how you have been able to be consistent you're like oh this is just a priority i, I did an interview the other day with or recently with a guy who started spartan races and I said, how do you set up your goals? And he goes, well, I usually have three big ones a year. And I think he said he had three a month or something like that. And he just sort of focuses on those things. And like, it sounds like you have one of your goals is just to write every day and write 750 words a day. And it's not like you have this in uh, an exact time frame in a schedule. I interviewed this guy, Jay Papasan a while back and he co-wrote a book called The One Thing. And actually, oh, I think I love you, that book actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote that book and he told me the story about how he wrote it. His thing was like, what's the one thing that from my memory is you just read it. So maybe you can correct me. What's the one thing that you did? Everything else would be unnecessary or irrelevant. And he talked about scheduling that thing first. So you made a priority every day. 
But it sounds like in your case, I mean, maybe you have something else that's first. I know you're also a guy who's in extraordinary shape. You're running conferences. You're working. Like you're doing all these different things. You're reading books. You're writing. still have a social life. Uh, you're getting ready to go to Burning Man. Uh, you're running a camp at Burning Man. You're doing all these really cool things. Do you have a tight schedule or do you have a, a more general fluid schedule where you have two or three or four or five things that you're working on in a month or a year? And I mean, how do you structure that for yourself? Uh, yeah, when you were reading off some of those, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And I'm like, shit, the tip of the iceberg is already a lot. Um, so for me, it's it's almost like I'm blind to all the responsibilities that I have are not front of mind to me. And I have systems to sort of organize uh, all those different lanes. And I pretty much access them when I want to with like a central focus. I would definitely say my schedule is crammed. And I tend to operate at a time deficit. So I'm frequently late a lot when I have to meet up with people because I'm literally finishing one thing and then rushing to meet someone else. Uh, I, I, I don't know why I do that to myself, to be honest. I, I want to be useful and I want to create spaces, um, environments, products, other things that can help people. And I realize I have a high pain tolerance. So I tend to pack a lot on my plate um, and live with the stress. But I, I have an incentive to reduce the stress and organize. So I'm organized because of the, the reality of the situation that I have a lot of things going on. If and I didn't, it was sort of all coming crashing down on me. And I'm forced to prioritize because of that constraint of having um, a lot of different moving pieces. So there's a lot of incentive for me to be organized and to prioritize. Uh, when it comes to priority or the one thing, uh, that that is very dynamic. Um, and I also like the the. I'm not sure if it was in the in that book specifically that I read it, um, or someone's blog post, but just calling out that the word priorities priority did not have a plural until very recently. So there was always the priority, but now we talk about priorities, and that plural can run into a long list and now you have a, a problem of now you have all these priorities, but you don't have a priority. And so for me, I try to have systems that reduce as much of the noise or like all the various tasks that I have to do and to focus on like, what do I need to do right now? And how can I sort of scout out or pre-plan ahead of time to see like, okay, how, how much time is this going to take? How much energy is this going to take? Is, are there dependencies? Who's, who's involved? Is there some resource that I need ahead of time? And I sort of space that out almost like I almost think of myself as like part of the Amazon warehouse sometimes and just like the logistical operations that go on in regards to delegation, prioritizing things and organizing. Do you use the back of a napkin? Do you use a calendar app? Do you use a project planning software? What do you use? Yeah, so I use a number of tools. I would definitely say I'm like a system user, a super user when it comes to a lot of tools. I, I tend to use the right tool for the right job. So I'm very surgical with the tools that I use, and that can rack into the numbers of 20. So just for time management, I have like four different tools that focus on different aspects of time management. So like time monitoring, time quota, time blocking, um, time reporting. Uh, when it comes to organizing, I use Wonderlist for to-dos and tasks. I use Evernote for 
rough draft note-taking. I use Notion for structured note-taking with like rich content. So hypermedia links, uh, tweets, and embed. Um, I use Google Calendar a lot for everything. Um, I use Calendly to schedule uh, meetings with uh, acquaintances, friends, and my mom. Um, so it, it, I, I, I'm forced to sort of develop these these systems and, and structure and tools in place to to make sure that the ship is is, is still is not sinking. Awesome. Maybe we can get you to share a list of some of these tools so people can research them if you have one. Yeah, I, I've written a couple blog posts on uh, the time management aspect of the, the time management tools, some of the productivity tools, um, and some Chrome extensions that I use as well. Okay, cool. We'll put those links on the Craft Christmas website. This is awesome. Um, there's some more things I want to ask you, but I want to backtrack for a second. Earlier, you talked about uh, your writing list. Do you have a list of topics? Yes. So I used I use, um, a combination of Trello and Notion. Uh, well, at first, my editorial calendar was on uh, Trello. So basically, various topic ideas that I had um, or things that are currently in progress, things that need extra research, things that are editing, things that are be, that are going to be published. So almost like this, like a Kanban system or, or supply uh, chain of events. I've started to move that now, migrate that over to Notion because it's a much more, so Notion, if, if, if people are not familiar, it's, it's hard to call it a to-do tool or a note-taking tool because it's a combination of Trello, Evernote, spreadsheets, um, embedded media, so Embedly, um, to-dos, and all these other things. So it, it's a very powerful tool, and it's enough for me to manage so I can switch into Kanban mode when I want to see, like, the the sort of progress or status or state of something. I can switch into page mode, and I can start typing up a draft or posting some some references to, to uh, based on research that I've done for a particular topic. So those tools have been really helpful into seeing like what, what sort of to, to capture ideas, to plan out a publishing schedule, to plan out a writing schedule, a research schedule. And it just keeps me more organized. What is your research process? How do you find these tools? How do you do, I mean, when you want to learn how to code, maybe you had a different research process back then, but how do you figure out, what is the best thing to be doing when you take on a new task? Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, my research process is definitely very messy. I think the research process almost with, with all the structure that I have, um, the research is the chaos and the structure just organizes that chaos into consumable bits that I can actually utilize. So it's a pretty much shotgun approach across Reddit, Hacker News, various forums, comments, Google searches, um, a lot of different avenues to sort of connect and collect information. And I just need to sort of or somewhat organize that, that chaos by siphoning it down into cer certain tools that can capture that, that, that information like Evernote, Web Clipper, um, some, some bookmark organizing tools like uh, raindrop.io is a good book bookmarking tool. Uh, and, and other things that like capturing screenshots, I do a lot of screenshot captures. So Dropbox linked with, uh, uh, screen capture mode 
So it automatically saves to Dropbox. So I have like this archive of screenshots and photos for references of things. Uh, those are just two. I, I have like some other tools too, but I can go on when it comes to the library of things available. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, if you have any articles on this stuff, again, we'd love to share it. Uh, I think if there are people listening, oftentimes they don't really know where to start. And that was something really interesting. You said you, you take chaos and turn it into structure, right? And I think there's oftentimes that's where we find meaning and growth. And other people have a lot of structure and they're so structured, and I've known people like this who had every single moment of their day planned. Uh, they know what they're going to wear. Their calendar literally is just, even their free time is scheduled. They know exactly what they're going to do. And oftentimes it's that unstructured time where they go, they take a trip, they do some things they didn't plan to do. There's some It's chaos where they find meaning and growth. And so I think um, there's a lot of potential here for people who are listening to sort of use some of the strategies you're you're talking about to grow because so much of our life is unstructured, right? Like even people are really structured. They try to control sort of everything, but life is just like full of unknowns and chaos. And we're just always trying to make meaning of it. And the only way you can do that is through systems. I have another question about going back to reading for people who are looking to read more and they want to absorb more about what they read. Do you have any tips? I mean, you've given a bunch, but sure. Yeah. I think for me, what I, what I get asked often too is, Oh, how do you read so much? And then, and then it's, how do you remember what you read? It's all personal too, but I think there are certain principles that could be a little bit more universal. I would say my reading or how I'm able to read a lot a more, a lot more books is number one focus. I see focus as a skill that can be cultivated over time, but it's a skill that's very painful. I've realized to cultivate because it's a lot of unraveling of it's pretty much, it's almost like stimuli or this hyper-connected society is like a drug. So being able to unplug like that, you're going to go through withdrawals and it's going to hurt. And you're going to have to be okay with that and like suffer through it. It literally does hurt. Like sometimes there's been moments where I've done this and I just withdraw to focus and I, and I want to check my phone. I swear to God, my fucking head hurts. Yep. Yep. It's going to hurt. And so like the, the, those, those are like neural pathways and the dopamine and, and all these other uh, chemical responses that are pretty much broadcasting these triggers for you to 
sort of uh, fulfill that urge or desire to check in because uh, it wants another hit of that that dopamine or, or special happiness notification. So unraveling yourself from that is going to take time and it's going to hurt and you have to be okay with that. And of course, a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but people are afraid of that and they're afraid of the pain and they're afraid of, to the disconnection that it can provide from a social level of like, oh, I'm not gonna watch YouTube, I'm not gonna watch YouTube or I'm not gonna watch Netflix for like months. Cause the thing is like, you can wean yourself, it, it's not always good to go cold turkey per se, but there's this weaning off that you have to go through until you get to that state where you go, go cold turkey. And then when you've been cold turkey long enough, then you can responsibly reintroduce and moderate better. Um, but that's painful because everyone's like, oh, have you seen this Black Mirror episode? Or, oh, have you seen Game of Thrones? Or, oh, have you seen such and such? And there's so much content being produced. So there's, it's very difficult. And things like MoviePass and all this other stuff, there's so much media that can be consumed. And to just walk away from that uh, can be painful and socially isolating. So, yeah, when if you can cultivate your focus, being able to read a lot more um, is going to come natural, supernatural time is going to fly by and you'll be able to read more difficult books as well. Um, having a, a, a list of books that you would want to read. So I use this system called a book purgatory list and my book purgatory list came also came through frustration of having these book, uh, like shitty book recommendations, just consistently like that's a bad book. Do you even read? Um, and so for me, I needed a system that can act as a buffer towards bad recommendations. So this waiting area, this purgatory, until I can validate that a book passes the test and can go to heaven, so to speak, or else this book can go to hell. And for me, that process involves, um, if a book is worthy enough to even make it to purgatory, then I'll get to the list and then it's this waiting queue, so to speak, and I'll read the one-star reviews first. I want to know how passionately bad does someone think a book is. I'll actually avoid five-star reviews. I don't like five-star reviews at all. I prefer four-star or one-star reviews. If a book is too good with five-star reviews and no bad reviews, I'm almost suspicious. And I think with self-publishing and a lot of the incentives around getting five-star reviews, um, there's not that much substance behind five-star reviews as much anymore. So I get a lot of value out of the passionate one-star reviews. Or if someone is able to eloquent, like communicate the points of the book well enough or four-star reviews. I met this guy the other day at a conference and he was, he had started a multi-million dollar business on how to publish a book. And the service though was a little hollow in my opinion. It's like 5k. They said it was seven, five, you sign up now. And they do like an hour call with you and then a half hour call every couple of weeks or something. Um, but part of the process was how do you write, edit and publish uh, a book, self-publish. And he definitely had some awesome ideas, but one of the ideas he had for marketing, one of the ways that he's pushed his books up to the top, I don't want to give the category away, but like he displaced at one point the biggest people in self-development uh, on Amazon. And the way he did it was by creating these massive Facebook launch groups where all of his friends would write five-star reviews. Like when a book launches and then it gets in the algorithm and bumps it. And so it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, I agree with you. Oftentimes the, the lower star reviews get, have more depth, right? And sometimes they're people being irrational or from coming from a different perspective. 
Yeah, exactly. You can filter through it, but it's not as much as because someone has to really pat. If it's like, oh, this book sucks, and it's one star, of course I'm going to skip that. But if someone's writing like three or four paragraphs with a one star review, that's very fascinating to me. Um, so I, I've gotten a lot of value out of that approach, and I've also tended to skew towards older books instead of recently published books. So books that are sort of anti-fragile in concept and, and unraveling that anti-fragile uh, term, it's more so uh, what is a either a system thing or person that when introduced with stresses or pressure, it actually gets better from that. So finding older books that are time tested, that are still relevant today, to me are significantly more valuable than recently published books. Can you expand that, uh, that idea into other systems? So someone is listening to this, like they, they have a better context for that. Cause I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, so the, the human biology system. So for example, you can have a parent that raises their child in a completely sterile environment with no pressure towards their immune system, or you can have a parent who is much more natural oriented, allows their kid to roll around and play in the dirt. There's some germ exposure there, but when those kids grow up and they venture out into the real world, the child that's been completely raised in a sterile environment is going to have a pretty bad time. Uh, once once they hit urban environments or are exposed to a lot of different um, airborne allergy or airborne uh, illnesses or, or bio uh, material and they're going to get sick and really sick their immune system hasn't had enough time to pre- prepare so that's a pretty fragile system um, a more robust system a more anti-fragile system that has been exposed to a certain threshold of enough negative so the body can deconstruct and learn from that and become stronger is much more um, capable of handling a, a wider range of dynamic sicknesses and another parallel quick example is muscles so muscles the muscle fibers when you work out they're actually tearing they're micro tears that happen in your fibers and to get stronger those fibers go through protein synthesis and basically heal themselves stronger, more dense muscle over time. And if there's an astronaut in space, they don't just send an astronaut in space and say like, all right, you're good, you don't have to work out. No, our bones are made to work at a certain gravity. And the dense bones have been exposed to higher amounts of gravitational pressure. So the bones need to have a stronger counteraction or a uh, a stronger density to withstand that pressure. And if an astronaut is in space for long periods of time, without any gravitation, not much gravity out there, the bones actually get weaker and they can break very easily. So they have these astronauts on specific regimens uh, to strengthen their bones so they can become more anti-fragile. That's super cool. I mean, there's, it makes me think of two things and they're just sort of side stories. One, when I first moved to New York City, one of my first memories of being on the subway is this woman was holding her baby on sort of the end of a seat or whatever. And the baby was sucking on the the handle when you walk in the subway, like on inside the car. And when I first looked, I was appalled. And then I thought that baby's going to have the strongest immune system. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of a funny, because <laughs> 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 people are charging it all day and you know how dirty the New York subways are. And the second thing I thought about was back here on earth, I had a friend of mine who was really into jujitsu, not jujitsu. Uh, he was into Muay Thai and I went and did Muay Thai with him one day. And my fucking legs were black and blue and purple. They were so screwed up. And he's like, well, that, that's going to happen for a long time. And I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, feel my feel my uh, shins and feel my arms. 
and they had changed like they felt like a different shape and he goes basically what happens he goes it's compression fractures he's like you hit them and they they break a little bit and they heal and you break them and and they heal and you break them and they heal and he goes your bones will get stronger in time and you're not going to have the same you're like i mean i literally could barely walk for like two days and uh He's like, it just takes time to sort of, you pressure the system and then it heals. You pressure the system, it heals. And what happens is in the process, you increase your capacity. And, uh, I mean, this is true in all sort of aspects of sports, right? Like you, whether it's running or whether it's, uh, swimming or, I mean, just the body in general, we're talking about focus, right? But I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think for people listening, I think it's useful. This is probably a stupid question, but do you feel like you remember everything that you read? Because I think some people feel like they need to be able to remember everything they read. Or... Oh, no, I do not. I definitely do not remember everything I need to read. I try to get my retention rate higher uh, through note-taking, through uh, smart association. So pretty much Elon Musk also talked about this recently about how he goes about learning across different fields and industries because he's just like a titan and a lot of different industries for me that and I mentioned the phrase earlier of uh, associative learning or principle based learning uh, with that it's if I learn something new it's me in my head figuring out uh, what do I currently know that is related to this and I pretty much tack it on and so you can start with the principles which is which are basically the tree trunks and then the more you learn about it the more you can build uh, farther reaching roots and then when you have subtopics within that domain, those are your branches. And then eventually you'll find out that there are branches that touch the branches of other trees. And soon you can almost like traverse the jungle of knowledge like a monkey. And you'll learn much quicker, quick, uh, more quickly. You'll be much more nimble. Um, and you'll remember way more because you're sort of familiar with that, the architecture of, of different forms of information. I'm curious. How many books are you reading at a given time? Uh, usually about four in parallel. Right now, my reading isn't up to where I would normally want it due to, to Burning Man planning primarily, but um, I usually read four books in parallel. I'll have a different system for the different type of book I read. Um, so everything I try, a lot of the things that I do, I usually put a lot of thought before I do them. So I'm not just doing things randomly, even though the things that I do at random at times, but when it comes to reading, I try to be intentional. So when I list, I'll listen to an audiobook, but there are very specific types of books that I would listen to a, on an audiobook. things that have, that are better in a narrative content when I'm listening to it. Uh, so just leveraging on just the research around learning styles and per, what your personal learning is, even though for me, I tend to Try not to pigeon myself into a specific learning style, but know that I am stronger in a certain learning style than others. So visual is my strongest learning style, but I try to create mental adapters, um, almost like iPhone. So iPhone or Apple, Apple has all these different adapters to, to sort of integrate with all these different uh, peripherals that they have. So there's all this content and information out there that is packaged in different forms. So not being able to have an adapter so that you can take in that that information could be at your detriment. So for me, with audiobooks, I tend to listen to um, narrative, like bio, uh, autobiographies, biographies, uh, fiction, historical books. Those I consume very strongly through the audiobook. Um, very recently published books that are something that I probably won't share with a friend, I'll get as an ebook. 
um, an older book that has stood the test of time or a newly published book by a very reputable author, a very strong concept, I'll get as a physical book. How many books do you have in your library, I have curiosity? Um, my physical library, maybe like 300, 400 books. Um, digital library, around 100 to 200. Audiobook, probably around 60. Yeah, I'm in the same, I'm in the same range. I think physical books, I'm up over 500. I use an app. I have to look what it is by literally just scan every book that comes into my library. <laughs> so that way, I, like I sort of know it's there and I can revert back or whatever. Yeah, I use Goodreads for that. Oh, I don't use Goodreads. I use, I'm going to, I'll check, I'll check out Goodreads. Why do you choose Goodreads? Uh, so Goodreads is like Facebook for book readers. It's a social network for reading. So I get a lot of reading recommendations and book recommendations from Goodreads as well. And I can post my status of what I'm currently reading, things that I want to read, things that I've stopped reading and share recommendations with the broader uh, network. And you can also set reading goals there, like a specific amount of books that you want to read per year. And it's pretty good at keeping you up to date at your pace and how far behind you are from that goal. Uh, but their mobile app also has a scanner um, that you can scan the barcode for your book and it would automatically add it to your Goodreads library. Yeah, it's awesome. I think I will join Goodreads today and I will follow you. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I wanted to ask you, i switch gears a little bit. Um, we've talked a little bit about this, but uh, can you talk about using systems to track your habits and progress? talked about staying organized but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and how you're able to be as productive as possible essentially like why is it important to track habits and progress yeah um i think it's the the kind of semi-famous saying is that what can be tracked can be managed and for me tracking my habits allows me to be more intentional intentional about cultivating the person i want to become so if I see someone who's incredibly fit or reads consistently, writes consistently, um, I, I try not to focus on like the shallow topics of like, oh, yeah, I want six pack abs or, oh, yeah, I want to be like a famous author or all this other stuff. I think about what are the behaviors of someone potentially who has six pack abs outside of the genetic influences and some of the other stuff or what are the, the habits of a author? And once I understand that, I've begun the process of reverse engineering the behaviors and traits so I can get down to the habits that, if done consistently, should theoretically lead to similar similar outcomes. Um, so now it comes down to a, a, a matter of consistency and prioritizing um, the habits. And I use a number of apps to track that. So primarily... I, I've used the habit app that I use have changed a bit. I've used habit streak, um, habit bull, uh, to track app, the habits and using these apps in of themselves is a habit. So you have to be able to develop consistency of using the apps if you want to, because if you've missed the number of days and the data is just messed up, that can uh, deter you from wanting to use the app because they also calculate your consistency of, of streak of habits. But if you're not entering it, it can you could be doing it, but it can seem from the user interface that you're not. Um, so that's a habit in of itself. And the benefit that I get from tracking the habits is just literally knowing how am I, how am I doing? What's my consistency? What times am I doing particular habits? What times don't work out so I can course correct and do it at a time that, that works well. And I've written sort of a, a blog post in the past too about this too. Uh, have you ever seen the movie The Edge of Tomorrow with uh, Tom Cruise? 
I have, but for people who are listening who haven't, explained. Yeah. So the premise of that movie is basically there's this alien race that that uh, comes to Earth, similar to Training Day. I, I've heard that. I, I don't think I've seen that movie, but people say it has a similar theme overlap for people listening. So there's these aliens that come to Earth. Uh, Tom Cruise, main character, is this um, army officer, and he's going through some issues with the higher ups on the strat, the military strategy, so to speak. Um, but he eventually gets like betrayed or, or whatnot. They have some grudge against him and they demote him from an officer to now like a field guy. So he's on the, they put him on the field, but he has no real combat training. So he's pretty much a sitting duck and these aliens are winning. So the, the humans are on the losing side and they realize that the aliens are winning because they seem to know what's going to happen next. It's almost like they can see into the future. But actually what happens is that when, if you kill a certain type of these aliens, it basically resets time. But that memory, their memory persists across all timelines. So they basically have this single timeline and they can jump back and know what you're going to do, your plan of attack. And without any spoilers, uh, Tom Cruise eventually comes about this power and he um, is able to uh, pretty much die repeatedly with no, because he has no combat training, but he comes again and he dodges a missile because he died yesterday from that missile missile landing in a location. So he iterates over time and learns and through that iterating and dodging bullets, dodging missiles, dying, coming back to life. He's literally becoming the ultimate soldier because he's just learning and iterating through what works and what doesn't work. And so I take a similar approach to habits in that the life and death is basically the beginning of a day and the end of a day. So every new day is a reset point, And I use the data from the prior day to course correct the, the process of the iteration of going through a habit. So if I'm writing at a specific time and I see there's a lot of friction or a lot of um, not much time to do a certain time. So that's impacting to do my writing and it's impacting my success rate at a habit. Then um, I need the following day. I need to switch it up and find out what works. And then eventually through switching it up, finding what works, having consistent structure and process you develop that system of capturing the wins. So over time you get better, you get more consistent. Do you journal at the end of the day? Do you just sort of make a mental note that I need to, how do you, how do you do this? Yeah. So I, I, I've used to, I've used a number of journaling apps. The ones, the two that I use consistently now are day one. So day one for Mac. And I think they, they, they may or may not have a windows equivalent. Um, so day one is basically like Evernote, but specifically for journaling. So the user interface confirms, uh, like has feature sets that benefit journal writing. Um, and then I also use this other app called Dalio. And Dalio is a mood trapping, mood tracking app that allows you to set your mood, the, your activities for around that mood. And also it has like this text box where you can add notes. Um, the thing that I love about Dalio is the low friction. Basically, it's this pop-up notification with these. It's almost similar to reactions, where you kind of on Facebook or some other tool, you click happy or sad or whatnot. It's this pop-up that just comes up on your phone. So all you got to do is just click the button to record your mood, and it, has, it it confirms the mood, and you can just tap on the activities. So like, if you were writing, if you were at the gym, if you were at family, friends, community, whatnot, and you can customize or add any of those things. So you can add additional moods, or you can add additional activities. Um, and then over time, you can see like this correlation graph with the apps reporting of like what positive moods correlate to what activities. 
and what negative moods um, what negative moves correlate to to negative uh, to to certain activities. So there's a lot of learning in that, and I've been using that tool more as I've been getting more. My schedule's been getting crammed. I haven't had as much time for writing, sitting down and writing out my journal, but I've been consistent with tracking my mood and activities. Uh, for somebody who has a lot on their plate and they're trouble managing anything, is there any sort of simple advice you can offer them? Yeah. So if someone is having trouble managing what's on their plate, I would say you're going to have to take some things off that plate. Uh, you almost want to sometimes hitting rock bottom helps. It's like dropping the plate, like hopefully the plate doesn't shatter, but all the food is off your plate and then you pick back up that plate and now you can be more intentional and selective about what you put on the plate because you you have more information about the size of the plate and what can fit on it. Um, so I would recommend a blank slate. If blank slate's not possible, then having a sort of uh, spaced out approach for organizing specific aspects or chunks of your day or schedule or work. Um, and that will give you some order to be able to quickly access information that you need to get certain things done to, to know what's going on, etc. Um, I'd also recommend uh, writing more about your work. So capturing those lessons, because oftentimes with work is figuring out what you need to do. I, I, I try to teach, treat work even uh, so professionally, I'm a software engineer and I keep this thing called a dev journal. So if I come across a certain problem or bug, I'll take notes on the problem that I'm trying to solve. I'll take notes on the links or references I've come across. And I've sol if I've solved the problem, I'll type up my solution. The reason why I do that, as engineers, sometimes we have to solve the same problem over and over again. And in instead of going through that whole research process all over again, it is um, a process of being able to have a rep uh, inventory of what you need to execute successfully instead of going through the steps all over again. When I first met you, you had told me you had gone through a period of depression and then you started uh, pulling yourself together. And when you tell me these stories, it sounds like this has been an ongoing thing, but you really started to move your life into a different direction. Can you start by talking a little bit about what you were going through? Yeah. So the kind of catalyst in what I was going through, um, yeah, so that was around 2015. I had just left my job at Amex. A lot of family uh, stuff was going on, like across the board. So like my family, my family is large, but my close-knit family is small. And the close-knit family, almost all of them got hit with something. Um, my mom, my younger, my two younger brothers. Um, and it was really rough for me. It's been an ongoing issue with, with family stuff, uh, but that was just one aspect. There was relationship stuff happening where I got like ghosted twice. Um, and I felt very self-conscious about that and trying to analyze myself to see what went wrong. And of course, eventually I got out of that mindset and realized what actually happened. And I had a lot of time and we were talking about news. And that was a period in time where I had too much free time on my head for my own good and started watching the news. And I became emotionally bankrupt. I was already emotionally bankrupt. Then I went through emotional overdraft, so to speak, um, with throwing news into the, the equation. And around that same time was um, the summer where there was just this chain of uh, police shootings on, 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 on young black men. And that one hit me. It hit me, but it really hit me when I started reading these blog posts or medium articles by the loved ones and other people within the community affected. And that, that one hit me the hardest of just like, 
what's left behind and what's left. Um, so it was this chain reaction. I like to think of it. Like I, I, I perceive myself to be very, very men- mentally tough just because of the circumstances that I grew up in and I had to, ha- had to be that way. But everyone has their limit. And to me, it was like similar to like the human immune system. Like you can have a strong immune system, but after a while, when your blood, white blood cells are, are constantly working and they're handling issues and there's more issues coming in, they're so, just sort of just overwhelmed and your immune system gets weakened over time. And for me, I felt like my mental immune system was just getting battered and shattered and my, my sort of my shields couldn't keep up. And soon it was just shields down and I was susceptible to like the tiniest of things. And that really put me in a, in a, in a low place. And I found myself uh, consumed by seeking sad material. So I would literally go on YouTube and search sad piano music, like legit search sad piano music, um, our loop and just like have that shit in the background. Um, I would watch the saddest shit on Netflix, like read the saddest books or material. That was like the only emotion I knew and something in me just wanted to seek more of it. I literally forgot how happiness and joy felt like, um, uh, like the literal, the random ass situation that gave me a taste of happiness or joy is like around that time I was planning to go to Burning Man and I said my packages had been delivered and I opened my door and I see no packages. So I'm like, shit, Burning Man is like four or five days away. Someone stole my packages. So like two days pass, nothing happens. And I'm just already depressed as it is. So like this, I'm like, all right, I give up. And then next thing you know, this guy rings my doorbell and it's like, oh, uh, I think they delivered the packages to the wrong address. And in that moment, I was like, oh, what? Thank, thank you. And like in that moment, I noticed, I was like, oh, joy, happiness. This is what it feels like. Let me take notes. Let me, let me hold on to this shit. <laughs> like I need to be able to like quarantine this feeling to, so I can remember it and replicate it. And I had that feeling and leading up into going to Burning Man for the first time, 2016. And, um, that was, uh, I was more open to knowing what that feeling felt like and combined with the serendipity, wonder, love, and joy of Burning Man, and all the art and people, it just allowed me to heal myself better. And through that process, I was also, while I was depressed, journaling and taking notes, I still had like the mental capacity, almost like a parallel processor. I think growing up, I, I, I had like these imaginary friends in my head that were different versions of me. So there was like, a childhood me, a teenager me, uh, like a young adult me, adult me, of middle age and elderly. And it was like this council in my head. So I feel like there's almost people, there's different versions of me looking out for me. So there was at the time when I was going through depression, there was a version of me looking out to me and it's like, all right, you never thought you can go be depressed. You thought other people do that. It was like, oh, that was never something that happened to you. I was just charging through life, super ambitious, super charged, and just felt alien to people going through depression. And then it hit me and I was like, shit, this is a valuable experience, valuable invention. I should take notes and like journal. So a part of me would just like day, day five, Giovanni is feeling such and such. And he's going through this, like literally me studying myself like a scientist going through this foreign state. Uh, so those are some interesting times. <laughs> I mean, it's a great story, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever shared with you, but when I met you, I was working on a software project and ended up killing it because one of the things I learned during that project had co-founders and they were supposed to build a product uh, and they never they weren't doing the things I needed. So I learned I'm like, I'll never do another project unless I know for certain I can control the development and iteration of the product. And uh, But I had taken a couple years off Craft of Charisma because I literally gave myself a breakdown. And I just didn't have the systems to be able to 
run a company, deal with all these different things that were happening in my life in the constant bombardment of some really intense things. A bunch of personal stuff happened uh, around that time. My best friend from college died. I mean, just a lot of shit was happening and I just, I, it was just too much. And my brain just checked out for a while and, and uh, I had to let other people take over for a bit. And, and, and the reason why I'm sharing this is because it was a really emotional experience and, but it was, it's important because if you're listening to this, I want you to know that like it happens to all of us. <laughs> sometimes you're going to feel depressed. Sometimes your brain is going to check out. My big motto now is like sustainable systems. Every time someone asks me about something like a new project, whatever, I'm like, is that a sustainable system? Like if we approach that, is that going to be a sustainable system? So um, everything in my life I think about, is that sustainable? So I have the capacity to continue to build my thresholds in different ways, right? Because like I had to ask myself, how does somebody like Jeff Bozos or somebody like Richard Branson manage all these different projects simultaneously and these huge amounts of people? And you realize it's all system engineering. Any last advice for anybody who is sort of feeling stuck, uninspired, and happy? They want to figure out how to reignite their lives? Yeah. The first thing is that's totally normal and that's fine. Um, it's, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, I think it, it helps a lot to have sort of forcing functions in your life or situations in which you have no choice but to do the thing you need to do. So finding opportunities to put yourself for, for me, that's just like stacking a whole bunch of responsibility on my plate. Um, and not everyone can manage that, but finding what works for you and using that as a, a sort of the ignition to, to light some uh, a fire under your ass. It's, it's hard to light fire under your own ass, but if there are, are external things that, just force you into that, that will help give you a lot of propulsion to, to sort of get towards the direction that you're trying to head to towards. Uh, another thing is I've really found value in journaling and writing. Um, I found value in, um, being open to people when I'm going through those hardships and speaking, not, not isolating myself. That's something that I had to learn to, to sort of, um, not fall into because I grew up with very introverted tendencies so it's easy for me to do that. Like people talk about, oh yeah, I'm going to go on this 10, 10 day Vipassana retreat. I'm like, oh yeah, that's just like a week and three days for me. Um, like on a normal, but <laughs> when in my peak introverted period. And so not isolating myself from people, go seeking out people, the right kind of people. Um, reading has definitely been like the most important habit out of all the habits that I've had, um, followed by, by fitness and then writing. Really thinking about the type of person you want to become and aligning your behaviors and activities and the people that can help support that, that vision. So you can self actualize into yourself pretty much. It's already you. You're just polishing yourself up, building yourself up. Giovanni, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hopefully we can get you to come back because we're both members of a group started called personal development nerds. And, and I would like you to talk about that and some of the things you gained from that and some of your other community building. But in the meantime, if you're listening, you want to learn more about Giovanni, we're going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him more easily. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house do everything I do to get them on the show for you. 
Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.